You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. Hello, everybody. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. We're in the middle of a little two-part film series. The The last episode was about the Akira Kurosawa's uh, great film night from 1950, uh, Rashomon. And we're going uh, a little bit more west of that this time. We're going to be talking about a, a Soviet film, a horror film from 1967 called Via. And uh, joining me today to talk about this is returning to the show, C. Derek Varn, who was on a few weeks or several episodes ago talking about celebrity liberalism. Derek, how's it going, man? I'm pretty okay. That's good. That's good. How's Egypt? That's a complicated question. I mean, <laughs> cops are getting uh, attacked, so that's bad. Yeah. And uh, we're under a state of emergency that's likely to last for 90 days or ever. So oh. the last time they declared a state of emergency in Egypt was um, at the beginning of Mubarak's reign for a similar attack, and uh, it lasted for 31 years. Well, let's hope it. Let's hope they. It got renewed every 90 days for 31 years. That is that's consistency. Wow, um, that's an that's an amazing political focus right there. Um, well, stay safe. Uh, I hope you're okay over there. Um, yeah, I'm fine. Okay, good, good. Well, uh, Derek agreed to come on the show to talk today to me about this film. Uh, Derek is, of course, you know, a famous Marxist, and uh, and I thought that he would have... Famous is a, is a stretch, but <laughs> well, I guess for a Marxist. As far but... as that goes, right? <laughs> um, but I thought, given that, you would have some really interesting insights uh, as a way to read beneath the surface of this film. One of the things I continually like to do uh, in this show is to sort of take a look at something on the surface and look at the kind of institutional structures that it helps us think about. And this film, I think, is a really interesting uh, version of that. So uh, the story itself, let me just quickly summarize, is based on a, a, a Nikolai Gogol uh, short story 
called of the same title via uh, which is on YouTube by the way um, I suppose mm -hmm. I have no idea how copyright works with old Soviet films but it's on it's they're on, not yeah <laughs> I think it's probably free to use in any way you want uh, but it's, so it's translations on, are copyrighted but the but the um, actual film is not yeah okay yeah but and so it's uh, it's up there free to free to look at and it's only an hour and ten minutes it's really worth your time to look at but the story is a, a little seminarian uh, of they you have this image of a really decadent uh, group of students at a seminary and they're going off on some sort of religious holiday and they find an abandoned house in the wood or a practically abandoned house in the wood and they end up encountering a witch the one the, the main character of this movie does um, and when he finds out that the woman is a witch he beats her and uh, half to death practically he goes back to his seminary where he is then summoned back to the village uh, because the young woman the witch immediately magically turns into a beautiful young woman at that point and she's dying and she wants him to sit vigil over her body basically for three nights and each of these successive three nights she rises from her uh, death to torture him until finally getting to him at the very end and that's sort of the the general plot line of the uh, of the film Derek do you have anything to add to the, the plot that you think is interesting that we should uh, consider well there's a couple of things to look at um, and the specifics. so he's not just specifically a seminarian the three drunken seminarians that are specifically targeted one's a theolo one's a theologian one's a uh, like a rhetorician or something like one's that. One's a rhetorician and one is a philosopher. And it's a philosopher who gets targeted by the witch. Yeah. Um, he's also a Cossack, which I'll get into a little later. Um, and his response is to, you know, and it's interesting because, because the witch doesn't try to seduce him as herself because her, her actual form is beautiful. She tries to seduce him as the, as the, as the woman, and he doesn't respond as the old woman, a very haggardly old woman, and he doesn't re respond necessarily, you know, violently until he gets picked up in the air. Yeah. Yeah, she basically um, rides him like a horse. Uh, right. She bends him over and gets on his back and rides him like a horse. And this is right out of the Google yeah. story. Uh, and he magically flies through the air when he realizes she's a witch, and then they land, and then he, uh, he takes it out on her. Yeah, so Eve is... Uh is interesting in the Gogol story because th this this witch tradition in Gogol that he's playing with, the ev spirit of evil character was actually invented by Gogol. Mm. Um, it's not part of Slavic folklore, or it wasn't specified in Slavic folklore. It's just like a general scary thing. Um, but you, the rest of it comes from like Slavic traditions. If you know anything about Slavic witch traditions, witches aren't good or evil in Slavic folklore. They're... The chrome figure is like ambivalent and and a lot more powerful, but not necessarily automatically bad. Mm. Um, but in this in this scenario, um, it's clearly just not just like a Baba Yaga, which who will eat you? Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> isn't always bad in Slavic folklore. It's something akin to like we think of a witch, which is uh, in the Christian tradition, which is. Sort of, you know, a devil figure. And the thing about the Orthodox tradition is that they don't have um, they don't have a strong tradition of like witch hunts, or there's no there's there's there wasn't really ever a formal Inquisition. 
um, those kind of things just didn't exist. There was the like the witch. There were witch trials there, but nothing like what happened in Central and Western Europe. So, hmm. and that, that baggage to... that baggage isn't on this film. That, yeah, that's things that we bring onto it. Yeah, that, that so just I, to clear that away. And that actually reminds me of the old 1942 movie Cat People. That's sort of the origin of Irena in Cat People is that she comes from this tradition of these. Uh, Eastern European mountain witches, sort of, right? And, and then she, carries, right. and that's a curse, right? Uh, and so that's a, that's the way the American Western tradition, at least, has sort of used that that folklore tradition from the Slavic region. But it's not a pro, it's not necessarily consistent with the way the Slavs think of it themselves, right? And there are subtle touches to this movie. I mean, it's made by Moss Film. Um, so it's a Soviet movie and there's a couple things to think about one for an ant for, for, for a system that was explicitly uh, atheistic, yeah. the amount of, um, like modern Russian iconography around Slavic things and around even the establishment of the state of Russia, like in Novgorod that comes out of the Soviet film industry is kind of amazing. Hmm. Um, there's a couple reasons, I think, for that, one of which is, is the kind of religious imagery that specifically the Orthodox were interested in, and you get this a lot from reading Tarkovsky's memoirs, um, couldn't make money. But it could exist as a statement of like socialist greatness um, because they could make quality films. So you had this uneasy alliance with a lot of religious filmmakers, and particularly in the 70s. Mm. Um, in the late 60s, um, and the Soviet state to offer an alternative to capitalist movies. Mm. Most of the rest of the Soviet Union at the time, and, and particularly in the areas like Prague, they were actually trying to imitate Western um, Western film and just change the values, values portrayed in it. Um, this is particularly true, and if you watch a lot of Czech movies from, from the 60s, but it's not true of Russian movies. Hmm. Um, now there's a lot that doesn't mean that a lot of the Russian movies weren't just pure Soviet workerist propaganda they were we, those movies we don't watch as much Yeah. but um, you, you gotta remember this This produced this movie this produced um, all the movies of Tarkovsky this produced a, a bunch of film that we consider seminal and don't read as socialist at all I mean think about solaris yeah it doesn't feel like a socialist movie at all mm. um and so particularly this period of, of russian cinema um it's very almost it's very literary but it's also doing things that you couldn't do um in other mediums um so there's a lot more play between the literariness and the image yeah. And like, you know, the attempts at special effects here, if you think about the time period this film was made with the money it was made with, the special effects at the end of the movie yeah. are amazing. It, it is. I mean, it is really impressive. Even at the beginning of the movie, uh, when the witch first sort of bends him over, that is like defying the law of physics. I, I watched it a couple of times trying to figure out how they they perform that little trick right uh, they it was really kind of visually striking for something made in 1967 with your right this is not disney money that we're talking about that, that this was made with 
No, and I mean, and Disney would have been hard pressed to do this in 1967 too. Think about horror movies from the time period over in America. It's like Rosemary's Baby and and that sort of right. Thing. I mean, you have you have some of the first really good horror movies in the same time period, but like not you don't really ha- they're not creature features really, and they don't really require that much special effects. Like this is pretty comparable to The Exorcist, and in, in in some ways more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing you got to remember about it is it's not made for for American expectations. So like we would find this time pe- like the time of this movie very odd. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's like an hour and 10 minutes. Like that fits into no one's um uh spectrum of a movie. Like I either want 2 hours or or it's not a movie and we should watch it as a TV show and this is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um yeah, there are episodes of The Americans that are longer than this movie, right? And so yeah. Right. Yes. But that that and yet this movie doesn't feel fast. I'm not. That's not to say it's boring. It just doesn't feel fast. It lingers on things. It uses visual imagery in a certain way. Um, it doesn't worry about the dialogue being consistently paced. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask and you. The, mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you a little bit about the um, the I guess the, the formal tradition that this comes out of. I noticed in the credits that it was directed by, I think it said something like uh, students who are graduates of film school, basically. There there was seemed to be a, a state-funded uh, training program for filmmakers. And the dire- yeah, the, and it had multiple directors. Yeah, the director of this is sort of corporate. It's I mean, it's it's a communistic sort of uh, acti- activity we, in that way. We actually do know who the director is. Um, let me f- find it. Um, but or it was directors. It actually is two, and it was. And despite reading as much as I have in Russian, <laughs> I don't actually pronounce it very well. Grigory Kospyov and uh, Grigory Kostryov and Konstantin Ershov, who is also the main one of the main writers. Okay, um, interesting. Um, and then the writers credited for it. Um, the, and again, this is not what the state government credited because it didn't credit anybody. Right. Um, but what has come out is, of course, Gogol, but then Esteryov himself, and then Grigory's listed below him, and then Alexander Pushko. So it is a. It was like a first film done by a a committee, but it wasn't a large committee. It's only like three or four people. Yeah. So it's a it's it's a small collaborative group, which actually is a pretty good way to make art. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So well, and they were. But, well, I mm-hmm. just want to say that they're well studied. I, I noticed. I mean, they're like versed in film form and technique, as you would expect a Russian to be. I mean, we talk about film in general. It sort of begins with Eisenstein in a lot of ways, and so there, there's a you have a great tradition of the Soviet contribution to world cinema. Um, but also, uh, like I noticed little images there. There was one directly, I think ripped out of, uh, the seventh seal where they're walking. There's the, the dance with death that the, at the end of the seventh seal the right. silhouettes, there's an image that looks almost just like this as the three seminarians are walking through the fields. Right. And so they're obviously, yeah. they're not just engaged in the Soviet moment. They are. No, like, they're engaged them. in European seminar, European, more European than American, but European cinema in general. Yeah. 
Yeah, so these are well-trained filmmakers, and, and you, you mentioned the special effects. It comes out there, but it comes out in other ways as well. This is not um, – they're not uh, amateurs <laughs> in any way. No, the shot composition of this, despite the fact that it's very slow, and again, if you watch this and watch Kartkovsky, you can see things that are related. Um, it's, it's very skeerful. I mean, there's – there's camera tricks in it, particularly in the middle that are subtle, like when he's drunk and he sees three versions of himself. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, but that's actually it's done very skillfully. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the framing, it's almost like Roman Polanski level. Yeah. Um, just the formal composition of the framing, but it doesn't feel like a studio, uh, like a like an American studio piece where there's so much formal composition. It's different than that. It's it's very much in that art house formality. Yeah. Um, the, and that's pretty great. I mean, the thing about the, the the thing about this, I mean, even the pacing is not something we're used to. For the first, I'd say, the the initial encounter, first fifteen minutes moves pretty fast. Then, like the middle of the movie, to about the last ten minutes, is actually very slow. It is. Um, and then and you know a lot of it's drunk. Yeah, um, and it uses and visual then, techniques to signal that, right? And also, and, and you get the feeling that it's supposed to make you question what happens later mm-hmm. um, until the very end. Um, and then the last, the last twenty minutes, which is really the confrontation scene, is incredibly fast-paced. Yeah, um, even though not a whole lot happens until that final night. Um, yeah, she gets up and just sort of makes mean faces at him most of the time. And, right. And then that final night, though, it just becomes truly terrifying. And, and uh, we can talk. I think that deserves a, a more extended discussion. I want to get into a little bit of the background uh, elements of the film that an American viewer, at least me, I, I know means something, but I don't get the context. And you mentioned the Cossacks, okay. right? Uh, so the Cossacks mm-hmm. seem that he keeps uh, saying... I'm a Cossack. I'm brave. Blah blah blah. And so he's using that as kind of a, a kind of a, a a bit of courage for himself, uh, to of uh, cultural heritage to draw on to give himself some courage to go in and, and visit this witch every night. Um, what is going on with that reference, and, and why is that so important? Hey, so a Cossack was an was a Slavic ethnic group that was not part of the Rus. Um, the Rus being, I mean, the, the the old Rus are not Slavs. They're Vikings. Right. Um, but, um, the Rus, um, and the broader Rus, the, the Cossacks were another Slavic ethnic group that were given special privileges as a kind of, uh, protector of, protectorate of the czars against the boyars because they weren't really aligned to the, to the Rus boyars. Um, and so they had the right, for example, to carry a whip. And, and honestly, some of these some of these rights have been restarted them in modern Russia, and they were often used as parts of the secret police or special parts of the army. Hmm. So, you know, kind of like the fighting Scottish divisions or something in in the UK. Okay, like they're not they're kind of an outsider sub ethnicity, but they're they're also given special privileges because of that. Um, and that was controversial during um, the Soviet period, particularly when they were trying to rush to Russify all the um, nas- the nationalities, as they would have been called, 
um, in the Soviet period within the Soviet Union. So during the Russification of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, trying to call out Cossacks and make Cossacks look like drunkards, which they had a reputation for being, right, um, is important because it's you know trying to it's actually trying to get these special privileges that are traditional dropped. Mm. And to get to incorporate these descendants of Cossacks more into the larger Soviet culture, because the other thing that Cossacks were associated with was kulaks, um, which are uh, large, large land-holding peasants. Um, and the kulag, if you know about the, the the worst of something that went on after the Russian Civil War and kind of during the purges, was the dekulakization. Yeah. Um, and that was particularly violent, and um, the Cossacks were linked to that. Now, I'm not entirely, like, my, my, uh, my understanding of why is still not clear. Mm. Um, I don't know if they were actually, had, ha, ha, were actually more likely to be large landowners or large landowners who didn't have serfs or what. Um, so, like, I don't know that, but I know that the Cossacks were, were had an interesting... Um, you know, relationship because they were subservient, but they weren't seen as this, as like the other Slavs serfs were, and they had a kind of separate tradition from that. And the the mocking of that that this movie does is probably part of how it was justified in being made. I see, because the Christian religious, like the Christian religious stuff in it, has to be undercut um, by other stuff. Yeah, but you know, well, and so and the Cossacks are. Character- and they're mm-hmm. they're associated with like Orthodox Christianity, right? I mean, well, they're associated with the Tsar. Okay, and okay. the Tsar is associated with Orthodox Christianity. I see. I mean, everybody's associated with Orthodox Christianity in Russia. That's kind of its defining feature. That's what makes you Russian and not Polish, mm. um, or Russian and not whatever. Uh, there's a you know that that is one of the d- distinctions between Rus- Russians and other groups of Slavs. Was their relationship to uh, <clears throat> to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and the Tsar and the Tsar being seen as the extension of the imperial power of Constantinople and that being seen as an extension of the imperial power of Rome and thus the Tsar of Russia being, you know, second only to the ecumenical patriarch in importance religiously. Okay. Um, I, so my, you know, so, all this is there. And, and my only kind of uh, the thing I want to ask you about, I guess, my when I hear the word Cossack, I think of violence against Jewish communities. Uh, yes, that's there too. They, right? They, right. And it is the violence against Jewish communities is because the Cossacks were the czar special enforcers. That ethnic group was used to smash the other ethnic group. It's like playing Irish off blacks. I see. Yeah. Um, you know, something like that, like in Boston, the 1970s. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that, that means except that the history of that goes on for 150 years. Right. I mean, these are the pogroms that we're talking about. Right. And, right. And in that way, it's sort of related to the Jewish tradition of the, uh, the golem, um, which actually I'd like to do a show about someday as well, but, uh, because that's sort of 
a creation that protects the you know that that particular Prague yeah. Jewish community um, against these pogroms, and so yeah. And, and Jewish studies is my uh, is one of my three specialties, other than Marxist studies. So yes, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, but <laughs> cool. All right. Um, so you think that the reason that he keeps talking about himself being a Cossack. Uh, is a way to, I mean, the way that that's sort of mocked in the film is how the Soviet overseers mm-hmm. allowed this film to be made. Yes. Um, I think it's part of it, yeah. I mean, it, 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 and I don't think, like, I don't think it's simple that they're just mocking him. The like coma, the main character, the philosopher, coma the philosopher, yeah. co- comes off actually pretty highly sympathetic. Um, but that element of his character is mocked pretty hard. Um, if it was a simple Soviet propaganda movie, though, excuse me, if it was a simple Soviet propaganda movie, it, that, that's all they would have focused on. But the thing is, he is really brave. He still does it. Yeah. Know? Well, but he does um, it for a thousand pieces of gold. I mean, this is another thing that <laughs> there's like a, there's a bribe right. involved with it as well. Um, <laughs> so, right. Like, and, you know, and the, and the capitalists, you know, are, are exploiting him. I mean, there are there is Soviet context. The capitalists are exploiting him. Yeah. And his caustic pride is part of why he's, you know, agreeing to it. <laughs> um, so, yes, there's a clear Soviet reading. There's also an Orthodox Christian reading of this, but there are things that complicate it. Yeah. Um, one of the things is if you notice what actually wards off the evil spirits is a circle of protection, yeah. not an icon. Okay. The icons don't do anything. Except scare him. They're actually terrifying. Right. They scare him, so yeah. indicating that he doesn't really believe. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because that cuts – that actually cuts – that makes him look like a more ridiculous character and like a faithless priest. Mm-hmm. But it also makes – it also makes the Orthodox religion seem to have some relevance. But um, the church, the fact this is on holy ground and all this doesn't have any effect on it at all. It's actually sort of like hedge magic Yeah. that, that stops – the uh, the attack, except in, until you get to the end of the movie, yeah, where there is an orthodox reinforcing message. Is if he had not feared at all, they probably wouldn't have been able to break the barrier. That his own fear at the very end mm. is how the barrier got destroyed. Yeah, at the end of the film, right after the the climax, two other seminarians are sitting there discussing what happened to to the poor philosopher, and this is the conclusion that one of them came up with. Um, um, right. Yeah. Um, so, what is it about that circle? That is that out of a, a pagan tradition? Well, it's just a general. That's just general ceremonial magic. Like you draw a circle to protect yourself. I mean, it's in Jewish. It's in Jewish hedgemach, uh demonology too. Yeah. But. You know, um, it actually reminded me. There's this great old Hammer film called "The Devil Rides Out" with uh, Christopher Lee, and they do that in there as well. They're, they draw a circle around themselves and have to stay inside the circle to protect themselves against the Satanist, basically. Um, yeah. So there's... well, if you read the the Lesser Key of Solomon, which is a pseudo Jewish text about demonology, it mentions having to draw a circle of protection. Mm. So that comes out of like Western occult traditions that are vaguely Christian or vaguely Jewish, um, but also kind of not. I mean, um, it's that whole gray area with Hermeticism and mm. Western Hermeticism and uh, you know uh, 
Christian alchemy and yeah. Kabbalah. My guess is someone who's interested in theology would really find this movie interesting. That they would really find a lot to think about in this movie uh, because it is so complicated in in its uh, sort of metaphysic. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I actually think it's interesting because you can't tell, for example, if particularly if you know a lot about or, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, if this movie is sympathetic to Eastern Orthodoxy or not. Right. <laughs> because the priests, come, the, the other priests look pretty good um, and what they do and what they talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't look like, they don't look bad. But... Um, the, the, there are subtle things that indicate that maybe, you know, the religion isn't having any effect. For example, you know, the whole icons, they don't do anything. The fact that the, 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 the spirit of evil pops up and they, they emerge from the walls of a church. Yeah. Like, that's something to, you know, they call the werewolves and the witches in in that last scene. Yeah. And, um, and both, you know, werewolves, witches, and vampires... We think of them as Western, but it's important to remember that those traditions are strongly rooted in Central and Eastern Europe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, even the words we use for them kind of come from there. Yeah. Um, so they call those in, and then they call the demons. I mean, then the, like the undead, and then, you know, actual demons come in. Yeah, with the many eyes. And that what great makeup. I mean, that is some terrific costuming that they uh, they put into this. This is a really well-made movie and that last scene is is actually kind of scary even by a modern uh, yeah. by modern standards. Man, the, it, even up I'd say up into maybe the 90s it would have been hard to replicate this because the effects are really impressive considering they're basically the same thing as Harry uh, Harry um What's Harry Housen? Oh Harry. yeah, uh, yeah. I know who, the the dude from Clash the, of the Titans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're basically that. I mean, he did much more than that. But yeah, they're basically that kind of effect. They're miniatures and clay and makeup. Yeah. But man, is it impressive. I mean, particularly with the thing with the super long eyes. Yeah. I mean, like that's the actual spirit of evil that really drives him over the top. Yeah. You know, and you don't really know how they kill him because. Um, you know, they, he breaks down and they descend on them. Then sunlight comes and they all leave. Yeah. Um, and he's just dead, but there's no like marks on his body or anything. Yeah. It's almost out of fright or, or, or or whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also I noticed in that scene as well and throughout other moments in the movie too, just to kind of get back to like film technique, the whole like montage style of editing, which we associate with um, Eisenstein and, and Soviet cinema, uh, they you they make use of that in, in really uh, interesting ways in this uh, in that climax scene particularly. There's all sorts of um, dissociative uh, cuts that uh, actually disorient you as a viewer and actually work very effectively to build the horror of that of that moment. So. Yeah, they don't use montage scenes the way we're used to them being used in capitalist cinema. Yeah. Um, where they just kind of denote the passage of time. They're actually used to disorient the crap out of the yeah. out of the uh, the members of the audience. And that's fascinating, too, because we don't use it that way. Like, yeah. we might do quick cuts, but we don't do full montage cuts. And, uh, yeah, montage is when you, you cut to something that is completely unrelated to the scene, right? That brings, it's almost like intertextuality more than that's like a postmodern term, uh, for like literary yeah, it's style. It's definitely non diegetic. Yeah. So yeah. 
Yeah, and, and you have this, uh, and it's got this. Uh, it's almost like an impressionistic uh, effect that it has more than a literal creating of film time space. Uh, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's a different. If you're not, if you haven't seen Russian cinema at all, and frankly, I've only really watched Eisenstein. Um, I haven't really. I'm not very well versed in, in Russian cinema mm. beyond that. I'm judging you. I'm judging you. All right, go ahead. No, 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 you should be. Uh, and honestly, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm more interested now than I was. So, um. Yeah, if you watch every Tarkovsky movie ever made. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting to me because a lot of the Soviet cinema is actually explicitly religious. I mean, Tarkovsky, for example, is, you know, he's highly religious. Mm. Like... Um, he, he turns Stanislav Lem, who, you know, who's a critic of communism, even though he comes from it, um, into, into a metaphor about, you know, what it is to be a person, what it means to be an image in the likeness of God. If you really watch Solaris, the, the orthodox context of Solaris is, and compared with the, the points about alienness and mm-hmm. utter alienation that Stanislav Lem is doing, it's it's all there. So what's fascinating to me is how like this atheistic state produces some of the best religious cinema, hmm. whereas a lot of the West religious cinema that's explicitly religious is crappy. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean it's 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 like there are good religious movies, but I mean are all of them made by Scorsese? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm also ashamed I haven't seen Silence yet. Uh, I really do need to see that. Uh, whether, shame. Yes, I, I know. Shame. I, I, I have kids. When I go to the movies, it's to see cartoons. That's the only chance. I, yeah. That's the only time. I wouldn't I, take your kids to see Silence unless you just want to break them early. Um, <laughs> good advice. Thank you. Um, I, but I wonder, going back to that idea, is the idea that these this, these Christian messages is that in spite of the the Soviet state or is that smuggled in somehow under the noses of the censor both I think um, Tarkovsky it's in spite I mean Tarkovsky they, they didn't make any much to hide it but also the Soviet religious policy had really relaxed by the 70s mm. um, it is already relaxing in Stalin's time I mean the, but there was a kind of establishment of their own Orthodox Church and you know, that led to a lot of stuff. If you know anything about the, the, the controversies of orthodoxy in America, actually the stuff around the Soviet Union created huge problems. Because mm. there, the there was a Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which was in exile, which became semi-independent auto, auto, uh, and kind of established its own thing. And there's another Orthodox Church from the Russian Orthodoxy called the, America, the Orthodox Church in America. Because the weird thing about the United States is the diaspora Orthodox churches have not joined mm. so there's like even though there is an orthodox church in america like the greek orthodox church doesn't recognize it as having jurisdiction over its own members but they're outside of greece and so the the notion that that uh what determines the difference in orthodoxy being purely nationality is actually complicated because of events in russia that led to events in america okay um and so you know, if you know a whole lot about Eastern Orthodoxy, you know that this actually has not led to a schism, but it's led to a weird situation where there are multiple churches who are Orthodox representing the United States who are in communion with each other, but do not recognize each other's jurisdiction. Okay. 
Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, that's Protestant levels of complicated right there. But, um, so, you know, uh, well, okay, and, and so, um, and honestly, right now, and I can't remember the name. There's a a, a controversy within evangelical circles right now. Uh, a prominent evangelical, and his name escapes me, who has some radio show, uh, has just openly Dobson. Yeah, okay, no, no not Dobson. <laughs> um, uh, no, he, he is no, I'm kidding. He is just. But no, uh, I know what I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and um, he, he converted to orthodoxy. And, uh, but it wouldn't be the first time this happened. Frank, what's his face? He was a descendant, you know, descendant of hardline Protestants. Um, Schaefer converted to orthodoxy, huh? Are you talking about Schaefer? Yeah, Frank Schaefer converted to orthodoxy too. Okay, yeah. I mean, you know, you know who his parents are. Yeah, Francis, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like. Woo. Well, I gotta say, just on that note, I know he's never going to listen to the show. I saw him speak last summer at the Wild Goose. Uh, festival uh-huh. and oh what a nightmare uh, that guy uh, it was i have that was frank schaefer yes or francis schaefer frank, frank yeah frank. it was one of the most uh, 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 disgusting speeches i've ever seen given honestly and my child is there with me and i'm having to tell her how everything he said was stupid and so yeah i i, I got no love for that guy uh based on, <laughs> based on my one little bit of contact for him with him um so uh let me get back then to the film itself we've been talking about a lot about the uh kind of religious and social context behind mm-hmm. it. Let's talk about Soviet, the system of Soviet cinema itself. You said this was uh, made by Moss Film, which is, mm-hmm. a, you know, the Hollywood, basically, of, of Russia. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, and we talked a lot of, well, do you want to talk a little bit about Moss Film and its, uh, its importance? Well, I mean, Moss Film's just, it, it's kind of like the, Politburo, the Politburo's official film company. I mean, it's 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 weird because outside of Russia, it functions quasi-capitalistically. I mean, they did release these movies abroad. Yeah. Um, but Moss Film was directed under the directorship of the Politburo. So, like, you, it's very heavily, you know, it's supposed to be a system that promotes socialist values and... Um, there were many people, uh, particularly before Khrushchev, who were not allowed to participate in it. I mean, if, if like you, you read about Tarkovsky, but read about the writer Bulgakov, who's also a playwright, um, writer of Masker and Margarita. And if you think about it, if Tarkovsky had just functioned earlier, he wouldn't have been allowed to do what he was doing. Oh. So, like... Moss film softened over time because the the, the um, central committee's decisions about religion softened over time. Although they still ultimately thought they were going to wipe it out, mm. and they did they did persecute and suppress lots of you know um, factions within the Orthodox Church. Um, and, you know, they, they suppressed priests. They tried to stop the Orthodox Church from amassing wealth, but they did reestablish it. In war, right before World War II, and then Stalin tried to die it back down at, after World War II was over, but he died. And then, like Khrushchev, sort of in his desalinization, was sort of like, "Well, you know, we'll, we'll we're still officially atheistic, and you know, if you're not, if you're like a member of the church, you can't join the party, but we're going to soften the suppression." Okay. Notice I said soften, not get rid of. Right. But since we need to understand Russian identity and Russia work, Russian working identity in particular. The work, you know, the peasants and the proletariat were a big part 
of the religious community in the Orthodox Church, even if they were quote-unquote suppressed by it. So, you know, we're going to tacitly allow a lot of this to be discussed because it's part of our cultural heritage. Okay. And was there a Russian audience for this? I mean, obviously. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, Russia's interesting. Okay, so you, you like... You look at this, the former Soviet bloc now. All right, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria. Well, not so much Bulgaria, but Czechoslovakia, um, and a lot of the more liberal parts of the Soviet Union, of the not the Soviet Union, the the Soviet bloc. All right, were are more atheistic even now. Yeah. But the moment suppression truly stopped in 1991, in a lot of the poorer parts of the Soviet bloc the church became massively important. Hmm. I mean, one of the one of the things that I have pointed out about the ironies of, of Western life is that in some ways, um, and even you can even see it in film, the the anti-capitalist streak of the Soviet Union protected traditional forms of Christianity from capitalism. Hmm. Even though they were persecuting it directly. But you didn't see they didn't participate in capitalist activity the way Protestants and to some degree Catholics did. Yeah. So when they came back as a countercultural force in 1991, 92, 93, 94, they came back big. And truly countercultural then. Yeah, and truly countercultural because they were opposed to Soviet, although they're now not anymore. Yeah. Like they, 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 they dominate Soviet culture, even in Soviet politics, in a lot of ways. Hmm. I mean, Soviet. I say that Russian. <laughs> yeah, I know. Russian, I know. <laughs> Russian culture, Russian politics. I'm being wishful. <laughs> I don't even really like the Soviet Union that much, but it's preferable to Putin's Russia in many ways. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> That's another episode, probably for another yeah. show. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, also to think about some things that people don't think about. Russia went through a deficit of men from alcoholism and stuff after this that was socially decimating. I mean, like, like, like something like, um, a fourth of the male population just sort of disappeared, AKA mm. drunk themselves to death. Yeah. But in the transition from, from communism to socialism. Um, wow. That, that, what, condi <laughs> what conditions is better for a church to reemerge in conditions where social, where society has been so softened? Yeah. You know, and from the standpoint of a Christianity, it makes a lot of sense that it would reemerge them. But it, it, to be fair, it, I think I think American Christians would have a hard time, and not just for formal reasons. I even know Orthodox Christians who have a hard time dealing with the political nature of the Russian of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia. Yeah, um, and its association now with reactionaryism and even you know racial ideology, which hmm. is not there's nothing in the aid in Orthodoxy that makes that the case. Yeah. But it is, an, it is actually something that's happened since the fall of the Soviet Union. And it's interesting to me to, to think about that in terms of these movies. Because, like, Tarkovsky couldn't happen in the United States. Okay. Those movies are too long and too slow. And the way you watch them are fundamentally different than the way you watch movies in the U.S., um, would Kubrick? I mean, I mean, is, is Kubrick is the closest thing to it, but even Kubrick is more has more action in an obvious sense. Yeah, like it's not as subtle. Um, but Kubrick is close to it. But yeah. you know, the the other filmmakers that are like that are like 
are from socialist countries, not necessarily communist countries, but like um, Igmar Bergman. Yeah. And like Nordic socialists, because those movies need subsidies. They're not mm. going to be made for a profit. They often produce profits, but over a very long term. They're not something that can be consumed quickly. Right. It's not Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy 2. Right. It, it's something that you, it's actually made to be watched multiple times and slowly. Mm. Well, okay. And, you know, and that's a, a back to Moss film and uh, formalism. Okay. So mm-hmm. um, I know that the form, like we think of formalism is emerging from Russia, right? I mean, the Russian formalists yeah. in literature, right? Um, Russia and France are where formalism really comes from. Yeah. Right, right. And so, and, and the st- and structuralism, French structuralism is uh, unthinkable without Russian formalism to, to proceed. Right. It. And also without, without, you know, Marxism. Yeah, so. absolutely right. Um, and yet, uh, formalism as a intellectual activity, as an end to itself, was kind of uh, not outlawed, but frowned upon, or tried to be uh, diminished in Stalinist Russia. Right? Uh, oh so, yeah, because it was considered too elitist. Yeah, yeah, and so um, and they this art was for the work the the common man, right? And so right, and, was, and, and it was interesting that Stalin's you know work. Uh, Soviet realism or workers' realism um, is a heroic realism that really does mirror fascist art. It's different. There are key differences if you really know how to read read the propaganda art. But, like, superficially, they look a lot alike. Yeah. There's a lot of neo-imperial stuff. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of mixture of classicism and brutalism. Um, There's, you know, like, larger-than-life proportions, super workers. Um, but that doesn't last very long that, you know, if there's a book on this called the total art of Stalinism, that's really fascinating. Um, but it really doesn't last very long. It lasts, it lasts kind of until the, uh, the fifties. And if you, if you look at formalism, formalism was kind of seen as, uh, kind of retrograde, Mm -hmm. um, linked to elites, you know, the intellectua in, um, in Russian class. Although intellectua in Russia is a, is a class that really didn't exist um, in the West at the time. So when we talk about that, when they talk about intellectual, they're not just talking about, like, smart people. They mean specifically a class of, like, artists and uh, patronized artists and, bu- and, uh, and bureaucrats who were not capitalists but also not royalty that were that were patronized by the the um, Russian aristocracy. Okay. Um, so that well, so you hear people um, quote Russian stuff. It sounds really anti-intellectual, but they're actually spe- speaking about a specific group of people, and that was who they linked with formalism, because it was sort of you know these people are patronized. They're they don't participate in the larger. Is this um, corollary mm-hmm. to like our our current cultural critique of the hipster, the, the someone who's yeah, kind of yeah, lives in Brooklyn and 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 right, yeah, has its own kind of uh, class, uh, you know, right? I mean, you know, except except the, the that's that's not like it's related, but the hipster isn't really a class. Like the hipster is a subculture within within the upper strata of middle class workers. Yeah, like if you like get technical. Yeah. That's um, true. 
I got to be Marxism. careful how I use the word class around you, I suppose. You're yeah, right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't let you, you, you liberal, your liberal soft-mindedness is not tolerated. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. But it is, like, when the, like, in the, in the Soviet period, the in the pre-Soviet period, the intellectual is a specific class that is basically, like, patron artists of the state. And the state here is the, is the aristocrats and the czar. Yeah. Um. So they, they actually have a very specific role. Their interests are in the current system. And unfortunately, a lot of thinkers and writers who kind of were just trying to eat because the only way to, you know, do your art was to get patronized. Mm-hmm. Um, their whole ideas get kind of washed away in this. Furthermore, um, the radical end of Russian formalism and futurism gets eliminated for being considered ultra-leftist by Stalin. Okay. So there's a subgroup of Russian futurists. If you look at the art, for example, from the Soviet Union up until the third common turn, it's super futuristic. It looks like Kandinsky's and, you know, it looks a lot, it looks a lot like, um, sadly, fascist Italian art. But yeah, yeah um, art, there's a lot of abstract art in it, right? That gets suppressed for being an ultra-left bourgeois deviation. Yeah. And so, so while formalism gets suppressed, like kind of both on both sides, one for being reactionary, reactionarily linked to the intellectual, and then in its more radical components, being linked to like people to the left of Stalin. Okay. So obviously bad. Okay. <laughs> um, well, in this film, though, I, I wonder if the de- you know, the degrading way that they refer to him as philosopher all the time is that a, a kind of an instantiation? Of, yeah, that's of, left over from that. It's yeah. also kind of left. I mean, but this also could be read in an orthodox context, because mm. um, or uh, orthodox the orthodox critique of one of the, one of the orthodox critiques of how Catholicism developed. All right, was that its insistence on logic over experience. Um, systematized things in a way that was what they would considered unnatural and not not rooted in the homilies of the church. Okay. So the Aquinian rationalism was seen as a deviation from um, the the church the 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 thought of the church fathers. Okay. So that slight can work from both an Orthodox and a and a Soviet. Um, point of view, which is why this movie is kind of hard to read, because the Soviet context and the Orthodox Christian context can be used to justify different things, or sometimes justify the same thing, as in the case of, you know, uh, Coma's you know being kind of a fool is based on the fact he's the philosopher. Well, that works from either the Orthodox Christian standpoint. Or the Soviet one. Okay, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so this is like almost like the, uh, the the radical left aligning with conservatives about certain critiques of liberals uh, in this way. Well, kinda, yeah. I mean, <laughs> today, you know, yeah. You, I mean, in, not for in the a, same in a, reasons. In a weird parallel world, but yes, it is. It is. Uh, it is kind of similar. And not for the same reasons, but they have this. They're criticizing the same failings of liberalism, but uh, from right. different perspectives. They yeah. see the same problems. Yeah. Um, um, although this, they're also. And this might be said. They are operating under the same stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. You know, there is a reason why certain far left thought was 
kind of endemic to to Orthodox Christians. Although the Orthodox Church was particularly unpopular in the Russian Revolution. I mean, that does need to be... Its popularity came from its persecution. Mm. Um, okay. Which, I'm not saying that, that they were hated. They weren't, but at all. But the amount of wealth they had and the amount of corruption that was seen in it... Um, to bring up some more things, Rasputin was part of a decorruption movement in the church. Okay. As weird as that is, but it really was. Um, Rasputin is reformer. Like, <laughs> right, and there was all, and, and, and in the church, there was all, and in the Russian world, there was all kinds of um, break-off and reformation sects that weirdly resemble Protestantism that's never talked about. The old believers, the old calendarists, hmm. um, the uh, some of the semi Gnostic breaks off that were popular among like really rural areas of Russia, um, you know it, these things emerged in the in the Orthodox context, but they're much smaller, much more isolated, and they were largely eradicated by the by the um, the Russian Revolution. Okay. So we don't know that much about them, but we know they existed. And it's very hard not to read them as parallels to some of the Western Christian experience. Okay. Um, So so the the fact that the Russian church was criticized as being corrupted, I mean, that would have been popular even amongst probably Orthodox Christians. Yeah. Very devout ones. They would have saw their hierarchy as corrupt because of the relationship that the... the, um, Caesaro papist doctrine, which they would never call it, but yeah. doctrine makes because the, you have to have an emperor to appoint the patriarch. Right. <laughs> right. Um, well, and I got to want to say, I know this is bad scholarship, but I do think that I, I just on a personal level find it interesting to do these parallels. And I know it's ahistorical, uh, but to sort of parallel these situations uh, that we're talking about in Soviet Russia to contemporary situations, I think it gives us an occasion to, you know, think about our own moment in uh, in critical ways. And I know it's not, you know, uh, it's bad historian. Uh, uh, in well, I mean, it's <laughs> interesting to do right now, though, particularly because how much Russia's affected the the um, discourse in the United States lately. Oh Lord! You know, a, a country, a country with the GDP of Italy. Yes. <laughs> with, you know, even though it's got the second largest landmass in the world, no, the largest landmass in the world. I mean, the country has has a tiny economic output, although it does have arms to yeah. to rival the best of them. So but the, the point, my point there, is like we're still in this weird way, like in a, in a weird way, the the U.S. and Russia. I've gone back into existing in this world where we, de- where one way defines the world and, and there's a completely different view of the world. And in this strange sort of way, the Russian Orthodox church has become popular amongst traditionalists who are not as enamored of capitalism as Protestants seem to hmm. be. Hmm. I mean, the, the thing is like, particularly in places like the Baptist, you know, the Southern Baptist convention, politics has almost taken, taken a precedence over theology. Mm-hmm. So, does it make sense to me that there's there's a whole lot of appeal to traditionally minded people to Russian culture and Russian orthodoxy after the fall of the Soviet Union and and so talking about these kinds of movies where the Soviets were both critiquing and endorsing I mean their own position here is complicated because their own position to Russian history and Russian nationalism is complicated yeah like yeah. they both want to eradicate it but also need it to solidify the, their their idea of a nation period 
So they're they're at one point trying to stomp it out, and the next level they're always trying to promote it. And this is literally the case um, with a lot of Russian Orthodox culture. So they're persecuting it at the same time as trying to promote it as some kind of pro, you know, pure pro religion, not as corrupted by power as you know the papacy or something. Okay. Well, let me uh, let me ask you then uh, real quickly. I want to get into this as a horror film. And as a horror film, it's recognizable as one, but it operates completely differently than an American-style horror film. What are some of the ways in which uh, Via uh, is different and subverts our expectations of that genre? Whew. Um, well... For one thing, there's nothing scary. There's nothing scary, scary um, until the last 15 minutes. Right. <laughs> um, for another, there's a whole lot of stuff that's about the social dynamics um, of the people around the event more than the event itself. Like, what produced this witch? Well, it, it, which I mean, obviously, some Soviet agitprop there. It was produced by a by a rich landowner. Yes. Daughter. I mean, you know, so. Um, yeah, there's an aristocratic sort of uh, critique in there yeah. for sure. Yeah. They're obviously evil. I mean, you know, <laughs> etc. Although the aristocrat, to be fair, the aristocrat isn't painted, isn't painted as knowingly evil himself. He's just, he's just uh, fulfilling the wishes of his daughter religiously. Like mm. they never make him, like he's a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy. Right. The only evil thing is the spirit of evil and the dead girl. Mm-hmm. Um, although why, why they were, why the dead girl was messing with him in the first place is never really established. There are the reasons for why things are happening aren't given in a lot of ways. Yeah, the two guys at um, the end just basically put it down to well, that was his fate. Uh, this is what you know God had his, in plan for him, right? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, he the, there's the two answers where it was either his fate. Or if he had not shown fear, if he had enough faith not to show fear, those were the two kind of the, the, the two priest answers. Yeah. Right. And you don't know. I mean, the, the, the movie's kind of interesting in that it doesn't actually tell you if it thinks either one of those is right or if they're both wrong. <laughs> like, it's just stated as a thesis to read the events that happened. But you don't know why, like, why the witch is doing anything. Right. Yeah. Like, why did they? Why did she pick on this guy? Why did she try to seduce him as an old hag? And yeah, this is like, not Job, where God comes down at the end and tells you what's right, right? Uh, this is a, yeah. a totally different format. <laughs> you know why? Why did any of this happen? Some of it's the conventions of folklore, um, but some of it's obvious critiques of things in uh, you know pre pre Soviet society, and some of it. You just don't know if they just put it in because it was cool. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Google story is a little bit more developed, and you do know why people do things a little more. Yeah. Um, it, but the lack of knowing in this film is actually interesting. I mean, you get what I'm talking about? How, like, you, you're in Coma's head. Yeah. Kind of throughout most of the movie. So you don't know why people are doing what they are doing. And, and you don't really get any other commentary on what's going on. Until he's dead. Right. So. Yeah. And uh, so, and also I feel like another weird, I mean, just, it, it's a weird thing to watch as an American viewer of horror films. And I've seen many, um, most horror films assume a kind of Christian 
metaphysic. I mean, uh, even there's a, a sense of justice and people who die are breaking. I mean, this is a convention of the slasher film. Uh, the right. people who die are breaking Judeo-Christian ethical laws. Uh, and in movies like The Exorcist, there is a clear sort of heaven and hell that is uh, that is sort of the meta narrative around the physical world that we're watching there. Now, in this case, there does seem to be an afterlife. I mean, I mean, there's there's supernatural beings in this. Yeah, film. she's dead when she like the, the the main actress acts more dead than alive. Right. Um. And but that doesn't come along with a god. Right? <laughs> that that it only brings the negative part of the afterlife into the film. And I felt like that was a weird thing about the yeah. the construction of the film. And at the end, he does finally seem devout at the, in the very last uh whatever trial in that last evening that he's watching over her. All the other nights, he's sort of drinking and smoking, all these things that he knows is wrong. The second night, he depends on his Cossackness to sort of uh, de- defend him. Right. And the final night, and he's sort of reading the religious text in kind of half-hearted ways. The final night, he seems totally devout in reading that. He looks like an old-time fire and brimstone preacher. Uh, and it's utterly purposeless. Uh, she stands up and starts delivering competing curses, which completely win. Uh, there is no sort of pr- divine protection for right. her. It's almost like the Soviet Union believed in hell, but couldn't fathom any idea of heaven at all. <laughs> um, I mean, and it's a horror film. That's a strange like uh, world, right? Yeah, I mean, you get the feeling that it like it's kind of an amoral world. I mean, um, the, the reaction to him when he dies is interesting. If you look at the the other the kind of peasants who find him. I mean, there's a lot of sympathy for him when he dies, but they're also like, and not surprised at all. <laughs> they and know she's a witch, right? Yeah. Like they kind of knew. Yeah. The peasants knew it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it was, and they think it's it, kind of it, funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they make him do it because their Lord tells them to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the thing, but they, they feel like they know he's doomed too. And that's just funny. I mean, so, I mean, in the parts, of, the part we haven't talked about this, another thing that makes it different from an American movie, parts of this are, are actually pretty damn hilarious. Yeah. But they're not played for, but they're not played for slapsticky comedy or it's comic relief. Right. It just happens to be hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah, the opening I'm trying scene. Try to think of an example of that. Well, the but, opening scene, um, the there's all these drunken seminarian students gathering in a courtyard, and they're like sticking the Bible in a goat's face, saying, "Read it, rector. Read it, rector." Right. Right. And so yeah, it's actually funny. And like they're tracing half naked women up a hill too. Yes. You yeah. There's yeah. Notice that. There's some debaucherous uh, like behavior going on. Some debaucherous uh, and vaguely rapey. Yeah. Um, not even that vaguely. <laughs> they wrap her up in a sheet and carry her off. Right. right. Yeah. I mean. And these and these are seminary and they're monk seminarians. Because another thing to remember about Eastern Orthodoxy, priests can marry, but monks monks are celibate. Oh. So Oh, that's interesting. Well and he actually then uh brags to well he brags to the father i believe of the of the of the witch uh that well I, I, when he's asked if he's pure or something so i was just with the baker's wife the other day are you kidding me like, he's like oh totally open about his sort of sinfulness right yeah right i mean so again it, the the theology of this film is complicated as hell i mean in, in some ways maybe um it's incoherent because part of it comes from a pre-Soviet context and part of it's a Soviet context. Yeah. And they both sort of coexist. Um, 
but part of it's also like it, there there's critiques of his there actually does seem to be critiques of his sinfulness in there yeah like the fact that he wasn't a sincere monk and again things that we don't think about because the eastern orthodox church and most non-roman catholic churches even traditional churches um so priests are married generally um monks aren't they take a vow of celibacy uh although you you don't have to have been you don't have to have been a virgin to become a monk so like there is that okay um and bishops are always from the monk class because they're seen as not having a family interest to co- co- corrupt their view of the community monk so you, me being a Marxist, I called them a class, but the monk group. <laughs> um, whereas the there monk. are things like arch presbyters and stuff, but they're not the same. Like, they can't become bishops. Okay. Um, and reforms of canon law in the Western Church made all, all priests celibate so that there would be no, like, so there would be less of a distinction between the monks and the priests. As far as who could become leadership, yeah. But the Orthodox Church takes its takes its view of hierarchy purely from Acts and from canon and from canon law around monks. Okay, it does not alter it because, like, for example, in Acts, presbyters can be married. So, according to the Orthodox Church, of course they can be married. Bishops can't. Mm. That's where those rules come from. Well, and, and that's interesting, I guess, because and this is where the Soviet of the film sort of takes precedence then um, because it's utterly critiquing. I, I feel like this is a debased religious institution that we're looking at. Oh yeah. It's not just him. That's bad behaving. Like they all seem just insincere. They're in this sort of the kind of professional benefits. This is just sort of their job. And, and uh, there's not like a sincere belief in the faith and the fact that the church is not only, not a barrier to all these monsters to protect him. They are mm-hmm. actually the walls of the church are from where these uh, creatures monsters emerge. emerge. Yeah, right. they actually create the monsters in a lot of ways, and the icons that we see become increasingly more terrifying uh, themselves. Like it, so there, there is definitely an ideological anti-religion right uh, position. There in is, this film. but don't you think that last scene like recast all of it? That's where, like, I'm with you. But if it if they'd ended with him just dying, I would yeah. say it was clear. But they end with two. They end with two or three, uh, like three seminarians talking sincerely about him. Yeah, and yet they are still. They, yeah, they don't seem to botch in any way. They're not portrayed negatively. Well, the one guy's like high drinking, and then he hides his alcohol from the the whatever bishop when he comes by to ask him, "Are you still working?" Uh, and then he. Then no, I mean, true, but. There's no prohibition against monks drinking. Sure, sure. Um, but, yeah, and the one of them does seem more sincere. There does seem to be a sort of a split between those two characters that we see. Right, talking. which implies that not everybody in the Constitution is totally debased. Yeah, yeah, and maybe what, that's what, why it's so which interesting. you don't get from the first scenes where everybody seems to botch. Right, right. Even, the, even like, the... The old rector. He doesn't seem to botch, but he seems like a... He seems power mad. Yeah, he seems and like... And a- also... <laughs> He's like a guy out of a Dickens story or something. Yeah, he yeah. seems power mad and like he's he's gonna make you go obey the will of this lord because we kind of need the donations. Yeah, <laughs> I mean yeah. you know. Yeah, and so yeah, I guess that's point. Maybe that's why this film is so interesting to me is because you it it 
in the end is hard to pin down in a way that is surprising in a Soviet film. Is are we in the Brezhnev era by this point? Is when we're we- we're we're getting close to it. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah, we're sort of. Things are liberalizing, I suppose, culturally uh, in the Soviet Union uh, to a great. I mean, they started liberalizing culturally as early as the fifties. I mean, that's the thing. Like the fifties for the Soviet Union aren't the fifties for the West. What we actually conservatized in the fifties in ways that were completely artificial. Yeah. Um, Like most of our notions of tradition were invented whole cloth in the fifties. Sure. Whereas, uh, and you know, almost by television. Oh yeah. I was just going to say by father knows best, right? Yeah. But I mean like the idea, for example, of like, uh, the nuclear family divorced from the extended family and all that being predominant and wives not working and all like those are all, actually signifiers of affluence more than they are tradition um because you know working class people wives had to work right they didn't have to work a wage they had to work in other ways but they had to pull in substance either from helping farming or whatever right like so our traditions are invented in the 50s and in the in the soviet era in the Soviet Union, what you have is a liberalization that begins in the 50s, as well as an attempt to kind of mirror and outdo um, capitalist production in a lot of ways. So it was not just that we can do the same things as you. It's that we can do the same things but better because we don't have a profit motive. So we mm. don't need designed obsolescence. We don't need quick – in the case of Moz film, we don't need quick – gimmicks that are odd that you know just you know reinforce base needs or you know looking at it i mean not that there aren't attractive women in this movie but like even the f- fact that the, the the range of attractiveness in the actors varies greatly yeah you wouldn't see in a western film at the same time yeah yeah. Uh, particularly in American film at the same time. We see in a Hollywood film. You might see it in like a Swedish film. Were there like movie stars in Soviet cinema or was it? Oh, more, yeah. Okay. So there was someone. The, the, you would, the, the, the yeah. guy, the main guy, uh, the main actor in this movie is kind of a movie star. Um, look up his name. So the main actor is uh, Leonid Kavelov. Which I'm gonna horribly mispronounce, <laughs> but um, he was in all sorts of movies. Um, uh, I think he's still alive, even. Um, yeah, he was in movies uh, until the '80s, and um, was kind of famous for some stuff he did in. Um, in the late 70s, uh, particularly Stanislav Gordrich, The Meeting Place Cannot Be Changed, and um, he did stuff like the Soviet version of Robinson Crusoe. Hmm. Um, so like, there were there were movie stars, So, but... It, it's not for marketing as... It, no. Not for marketing more, for profit, right? Yeah. Right. It, they weren't... It's almost more like for authority in the way that they use Gogol's quote at the beginning of this film to establish authority. Uh, is it is it along those lines? Yeah. Oh, so okay. So there's there's this art theorist who I mentioned called Boris uh, Gruz, I, I, Groys, 
I can't pronounce his name because it's Slavic. And wow, <laughs> I might have Slavic heritage myself and study all kinds of Soviet stuff. I don't really know how to speak those languages. <laughs> so um, he wrote that one of the problems of Soviet of Soviet power is that authority and charisma was a, was you know um, became a proxy for what would what would have been money. Okay. Um, now he, th- this guy's a communist, although I have heard, uh, conservatives make the same critique, um, that basically authority and charisma become the dominant factors once you move the quote unquote merit of money out of the situation. Okay. So, so there was, but I mean, when we say movie stars, they weren't, it wasn't like Greta Garbo. I mean, it was, it was like the way we feel about a really good stage actor. Yeah. Like we respect him as a craft person. But we don't think of them as, uh, like, the way we think about celebrities. So there were Soviet celebrities, kind of, but they didn't have authority outside of this, you know, I'm a really good actor. Mm. Okay. And um, Well, I wonder, now, now I'm probably getting this way off topic, but Gary Kasparov uh, in the post-Soviet Union has sort of taken that role, right? He's become, like, public spokesman for uh, political uh, insight uh, about Russia. And so I, I wonder, right. yeah, and he, but he was a chess player. And so <laughs> that's another, he's also kind of a crazy person. Well, yeah. I mean, he's not, well, he's a chess not as much as uh, <laughs> Bobby Fisher, as Bobby Fisher, who's a real crazy person. But yeah. I mean, the, the, the problem with the, the problem with Russian politics and the problem with talking about even the Soviet union is the old forms of, cultural dominance there related to the surf system and whatnot were really abolished really late. Mm. And in a way that's actually part of what made the Soviets possible is because there was a, a, a council system among surf that was very similar. And these were empowered, um, in the 1905 reforms and blah, 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 blah. I don't really want to have to teach your listeners all about Soviet history. My, yeah. my general perspective though, is Americans don't have any understanding of it. Um, but it's also because they don't have any understanding of how different Russia was. Yeah. Um, it was extremely different. Even its feudalism was different than ours. Um, and it it kind of came out of the fact that ideas about you know the Roman imperial setup never actually went away there. Mm. Um, so after the 15th century in in Europe. That sort of stops the religious wars um, of uh, the you know the, the the oncoming of Protestantism, the oncoming of world capitalism, the oncoming of of uh, so many different things. Like if you look at what, how much the world changed between 1440 and 1492, and then like 1525, like mm. that was effectively the most violent period in world history in some ways. Mm. Um, if you like look at if you do com- per capita numbers. Um, it was incredibly violent. There was tons of civil wars over religion. There's also the exp- the expulsion of the Sephardic Jews. Um, that's how I came into being. Um, and there's the whole uh, conquering of the New World by the Spanish. The great, you know, apocalyptic plague that unleashed on North America that we don't even know about except through DNA. And the fact that when the English got here, there's no one here. Yeah. Um, like apparently like two thirds of the, of 
two thirds of, of North America had died from plague before they ever saw a foreigner. Hmm. I mean, so like all this was happening at once. That didn't happen in Russia. They didn't participate in the same way. They were coming out of Mongol rule and a country that was literally moving its borders. I mean, the, the funny thing about old Russia is it's not even in the same place as Russia is now. <laughs> like, Kiev is in Ukraine. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. Novgorod, Novgorod, no one even knows what the hell that is now. I mean, like, I mean, yes, people in Russia do, but it, it, it's funny when you hear about this because, like, we are actually imposing our notion of Russia from the 17th century back upon the past, and that's not the case. Yeah. So its history is very different than ours. And in a weird way, again, the Soviet Union sort of eradicates how different it was. Um, because it I westernized mean, so much. I mean, economically. It westernized it. It did what Peter the Great couldn't do, and it did it in 20 years. Right. Right, five-year plan, and at great cost. Yeah. I mean, you know, probably why the why the terror and the and the purges were so bad probably had more to do with what they were doing to maintain industrialization than anything else. Yeah. Um, which I know is an unpopular opinion, but I don't actually think it was Stalin. <laughs> so, I mean, Stalin's a bad guy. Don't get me wrong, but but that's not what I think was going on there. If you actually look. At the, the archives, it seems like they were just like trying to force industrialization so strongly that they assumed anything that wasn't um, pushing that was was deliberate fascist sabotaging. And if you read Stalin's personal journals, he seems to have actually believed it. <laughs> so, so that leads to mass death. But it also modernized the country in a way that's really hard to imagine otherwise. And so when we go back and talk about Russia, I mean, you're talking about a political structure that is really top-heavy. But most people aren't really involved. I mean, like, think about the landmass where Russia is and think about the czar. It takes months for, like, a czar's edict to get to parts of the Russian empire. Like, it'll take months and months to happen. Yeah. Furthermore... And uh, this is another thing that complicates it, is the Tsar was a foreigner after um, – when the Romanovs get established because they're actually – they're mostly Germans who married in. So there's all these things playing into the cinema. And Pan-Slavism, which is what, why I bring that up, is a response to that. And it was weirdly, even though it was pro-church and you know pro-Tsar kind of – it was also very critical of all that hmm. because it was a pro-Slavic as opposed to German um, you know, movement to try to reestablish some relationships to Slavic culture. And again, we don't know much about pre-Christian Slavic culture, even though it's not that far gone. Yeah. I mean, you know, th th these uh, – we're talking about areas of, of Europe that converted to Christianity after the establishment of Islam. So, like, you know, 300 years different. I mean, 800, 800, 900 years difference. So, yeah. Yeah, and the, so the short version of all that is, I mean, this is a, a different world um, than we're used to mm -hmm. in the West. I mean, there really is an East-West divide here. Uh, yeah, and, oh, yeah, there, and it's a strong one. And the, But the weird thing about Russia is Russia is in dialogue with both. Right. But the Russian identity is Eurasian. It's neither Europe or Asian. 
And, the, and that netherworldliness, I think, finds its way into this film. And I, I came across right. this film years ago. A buddy of mine, this is back in uh, when bootleg VHS horror film shows were still a thing. Uh, so he went to one of these shows and came back with this uh, movie on a VHS tape and loaned it to me. And I'd seen it years ago, and it always sort of stuck with me. And I happened to bump across it on uh, YouTube recently, and I thought, I should talk about that on the show. Uh, and I think one of the reasons I, I'm attracted to the film, and I find it intellectually interesting, as well as like artistically appealing, I think it's a very well-made movie and very cool to watch, um, is that it speaks to all of these like institutional and cultural forces that are uh, so alien to us and yet so informative uh, potentially right. about you know what you know even we're going to through, through today um, culturally and institutionally. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me, um, you know, particularly when you talk about Eastern Orthodoxy, because it rhymes with everything we know. Yeah. Um, but it isn't that. I mean, you know, and for for me, like um, ethnically speaking, my family's part part Jew, part Bulgarian Jewish, part Irish Catholic, part or you know, Scotch Irish Catholic, and then part um, Eastern Christian, and so like I I, I exist in this weird in the weird way you know um and you grew up in it all Georgia. world i grew up in the deep south yeah <laughs> and to make it make it even more complicated my father has converted to like four different religions so like i was actually kind of raised more buddhist than anything else makes no sense it's crazy but um i know about all this from my personal family experience and even some of it i just don't you know, even with that connection, I often don't get it either. Because <laughs> there's also all this Slavic folklore stuff that is utterly alien to me. It is not part of the folklore tradition I know. Yeah. Well, um, and that to me, makes I mean, you... or it is, but kind of, but not directly. Like it's always reinterpreted and re and like Christianized in a different way. Yeah. And, and honestly, that for me makes is what makes it so interesting. It, it, it's close enough to what we recognize, but just off enough that makes it interesting. And, and, and I, I think that there's a lot to think about. Uh, and obviously, every time you're on my show, you uh, kind of go off on these tangents, and you give us a ton to think about and to look up into ourselves. Look into <laughs> ourselves, uh, which is one of the things I love about you, man. That was uh, that was really an interesting conversation. Is there anything else about the movie you want to uh, talk about before we uh, sign nope. off? Nope. Watch. It. Um, it's it's really good and it's free, people. It's <laughs> you can just go watch it. You don't have to pay anybody. Oh, yep, yep. The, the 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 subtitle translation, from what I understand, is actually pretty good. Okay, I, I always am worried about that. I mean, like Slavic is a, you know Russian is a Slavic language. Slavic languages are technically Indo-European, but they're weird. <laughs> so. Um, from our perspective, on our little branch of that language family, so like I'm always worried about the translations, but apparently the translation is pretty okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah. but I, I guess I say if you want to watch this, watch it, watch it very slowly, very carefully. If you have to like stop it a couple of times and go do something else and come back to it, it's totally okay, even though it's short. Yeah, I mean. I watched it straight through, and the one time I kind of stop, I would stop it, watch it like twenty minutes at a time. I actually got probably more out of it the second time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I watched the final scene, for example, when when all of these monsters are coming in, and there are so. I mean, we could have had a whole show just on the, the that one scene. Uh, just formally, it's amazing, and all of the innovative ways that they use 
camera tricks and costuming and uh, camera angles to uh, to create this nightmare scene that he goes through at the very end. It is truly impressive, uh, and, and it's really, really interesting, and a really neat achievement of uh, cooperative art. This is not sort of auteur theory we're talking about here. This is a cooperatively made uh, film and, and cinema, and, and it's 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 quite interesting. And I think uh, I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, in, in some ways, I think it's an interesting. Uh, if you've if you if you've gone back and watched Rashomon after the last episode, I think going back and watching this one, I think these two films speak to each other in interesting ways because of the uh, the uncertainty that they uh, they are kind of centered in. And so I think that uh, I think you'll enjoy. Uh, following up Rash- following up Rashomon with this movie so um, Derek thank you so much I will uh, I'll be in touch and have you back for another show somewhere down the line you yeah know, I hope I don't lose your your readers interests with weird tangents about ancient history but- well I, I tell you what if, if, if that's the case it's their loss you know you I keep writing this stuff down and I'm gonna go I'm gonna spend the rest of the day on Wikipedia trying to see what the heck you were talking about and so no I think- yeah oh, yeah awesome also <laughs> Learn about Eastern Christianity, damn it! Um, it's it's fascinating, and it's I don't think like it's the second largest branch of Christianity. It's very important in the world right now, particularly in the Middle East. And most of you guys don't know anything about it. Just saying. Yes, um, and I'm trying to uh, the real quickly remember. There's a Rod Dreyer I know has just published something. Okay, so the guy's name is Hank. Um, Hank Hanegraaff. Hanegraaff, yes. He converted. The Bible Answer Man. Yes, that's right. He converted, and now all these uh, sort of evangelical stalwarts are trashing orthodoxy as some sort of idolatrous practice, and now Rod Dreher is pushing back on that. It's a really interesting time to think but about Rod, that. I mean, Rod Dreher is a Catholic, right? Sure. I mean, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, but, yeah, yes, he would. I mean, you know, Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher is my favorite and least favorite part of the American conservative magazine because I'm just like, what is um, <laughs> what is Catholic Flanders going to think? <laughs> um, <laughs> so you might want to edit that out of here. <laughs> no, no, I don't care. Um, <laughs> what is Catholic Flanders going to think about this? Because that's how I kind of read him. I'm just like, he is too wholesome to be real. Um, Did you listen to uh, Nathan Gilmore's interview with him on Christian Humanist Profiles? Actually, I just queued it up to listen to soon because I, I tend to listen to you guys' stuff out of order. Yeah, it, I, I tend to listen to Sectarian and the main and the Christian Humanist podcast main first, yeah. and then I re- I listen to Profiles because Profiles are like tangentially related to me. But I, I'm really interested. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good conversation. Um, but that said, I mean that's all just. This discussion about orthodoxy that came out of watching this film is related to a hot topic, uh, if, if you will, uh, yeah. in oh, yeah. uh, in Christianity, American Christianity, right now. And so I think Russians are scary. Russian religion is scary. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> totally. All right, buddy, you take Bye. it easy. You Thank, too. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.